week of September 24th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 632, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world in Los Angeles, where I'm busy hammering out my I's and crossing my T's. I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Hammering out, okay. And in uh, on the 50 yard line, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, that's a much better that's a much better one. You know, because the Writers Guild said that they were crossing their T's and dotting their I's and they couldn't tell us any details about whatever they've worked out. So I thought I'd You'd switch it up. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Sorry about yeah. that. I couldn't quite understand that. But Sperling, are you ready for some football? I am kind of ready for some football, I suppose. Why do you ask? I don't mean soccer. Oh, football's in the news. Taylor Swift is reportedly dating a football player and the internet's a buzz. Uh, More better, she made the internet a buzz by saying, hey, register to vote. And thousands of her fans went out and registered to vote. I wish it was millions of her fans because thousands doesn't really excite me, but millions is great. And I'm glad to hear her telling people. I hope she sets up booths to vote, register to vote at all her concerts. Oh, wait, the tour is over. Maybe people could have booths outside the movie theaters. Hey, if you're involved in vote registration, and I know one party is trying to make that really dangerous and difficult and expensive to do, but if you can do it, Go out to the movie theaters and set up a booth for registering to vote. Maybe you can catch people when they're coming in, going out from the Taylor Swift concert, because that's going to open to $100 million. Uh, I know, possibly, yeah. Possibly. Really unbelievable. Is. More football news. Usher is going to be headlining the Super Bowl halftime show. Hold on. I just got to cross off. Okay. Headline Super Bowl. Okay. I'm crossing yeah, that yeah, off my list here. Apparently yeah, yeah, it's not, not going to be us, Michael. Sorry. No, that's right. Though, boy, were we, or at least I was wrong when we thought, they're going to have struggles for years to book the halftime show. After the Colin Kaepernick mess uh, and, the, and the treatment of him, we thought everybody was walking away from the Super Bowl. But I guess it's just too big an audience to walk away from. It just but, goes to show you, memories are short. Yeah. But college football, that's the story I want to tell. Florida State played Clemson on Saturday. Florida State is a resurgent team, uh, an arch rival of my school, the University of Florida. Not that I care. But anyway, they're a top five team now. They're having a great season. They're doing terrifically well. But they were facing Clemson over the weekend on Saturday. And Clemson has beaten them seven times in a row. So they're their arch rival. And really, you know, Florida State was nervous and they faced them. And Clemson had a sort of Cinderella story. There was a kicker on the team. He'd been on the team for two years. He left the team. He practically left school, but he was taking classes online. So he was still a student. Then the last kicker they had, things didn't work out or whatever. Things went wrong and they needed this guy and they brought him back in. So an online student came back onto the field, was on the team and he kicked a field goal to keep them ahead of the ga- in the game. So that was super exciting. And then right towards the end of the game was a nail biter all the way. There Clemson was uh, ready to kick a field goal and maybe end the game and keep from going into overtime. And here comes that kicker, the online student. And he sets up and one of the announcers says, oh my gosh, this is a Hollywood ending. You know, this this could be a Hollywood ending. Not really. And he missed. (laughs) And then the other other guy, apparently an announcer who's really into movies says, yes, it could have been a Hollywood ending, but you forgot the writers are on strike. Oh, (laughs) that's a very very good, very good for a college football game. Good, good thing. And they couldn't have made that joke on Sunday, but they made it on Saturday. That's true. Well, they were still on strike most of Sunday. Yeah, yeah. So that was very cool. Um, and by the way, uh, links to some stuff I've been reading or watching. Um, uh, Harper's Magazine has this wonderful New Yorker length feature on these people who collect pulp paperbacks. It's 
really, really great. I have a link to it in my show notes. And someone else sent around that Star Wars short. It's called Star Wars 1923. Have you seen this? It's like a silent film version of Star Wars. Very clever, very well done. Uh, that should get them a deal of some sort. Very, very smart, very good stuff. So check those things out if you like. The links are in our show notes. Is there a show next week, Sperling? Usually I ask that off the air, but I forgot to. Yeah, yes. Oh, Woo! Always. yes. All right, there's okay. going to be a show next week. We've Our writers are back on staff. They're poised to come back and fill us with great copy and banter so that we can have a, a better show than ever. Uh, so sans writers, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are celebrating the likely end of the writer's strike. That is if Michael can make it from the 50-yard line all the way to the home plate. Right? That's the way it works, right? <laughs> we need writers. <laughs> yeah. Details are still coming in, but we've got Jonathan Handel, journalist, lawyer, and expert on unions and residuals to discuss the latest and what it means for the actors and maybe what it means for the DGA down the road. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, I know, Michael, you want to talk to him about uh, chat GPT a little bit too, right? That's on Inside Baseball. Oh, okay. So, our, well, all right. Okay. On, speaking of which, <laughs> inside Somebody, baseball. Not only do we need writers, we need readers, people who look at what they're about to say on the air. I thought, I, but I just, I don't know. I thought you were, Jonathan, we're talking to at the head of the show and uh, Inside Baseball's at the end. I don't know. Were you, I don't know. Um, speaking of Inside Baseball, we are look, looking closer at ChatGPT, a name, by the way, I struggle to say, and I don't know why. Uh, but those, uh, ChatGPT and those other AI programs have gobbled up seemingly every book ever written in order to train those systems. And I guarantee you, Michael, anything you've written has been gobbled up. Same with myself. My I'll question bet. is, is it legal? I mean, you know what? Should writers get a cut? Certainly yes. authors, they, certainly authors think they should. And the number of class action lawsuits is increasing every day. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. We've already discussed some of them. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office from around the world. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes. And we pull information from everywhere, from that Bollywood chart, from charts about China, from all the trade papers, the LA Times, uh, you name it. Uh, you, our listeners, help us out. And the number one film around the world, this is scary. It's The Nun 2, another $45 million worldwide. That's for the entire week's box office. We're the only one that talk about that. So if you come to someone else, they'll tell you The Nun made $30 million or $22 million or $8. We give you the biggest total because we count every day of grosses. And from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it grossed $45 million and passed the $200 million mark. Huge success story for that Conjuring franchise. Also scary is A Haunting in Venice, the Kenneth Branagh film with Hercule Poirot. Another $35 million this week. That's at $72 million worldwide. And that movie should appeal to older adults. It should play well if it can still hang on to theaters come Halloween, though that might be a, a tough sell. Um, it is a kind of, maybe they opened up a few weeks early because well, the nun too, I guess. But anyway, $72 million and counting. It needs to almost triple that to get to profitability from box office alone. That won't be a problem for Jawan. That's an Indian Hindu action thriller that made another $30 million this week. It's at $130 million worldwide so that's great to see and that's certainly uh quadruple tripling quadrupling really its budget of 36 million dollars so off to a great start expendables four or expendables the four is stuck in the middle there the latest in the stallone franchise uh, not so good 23 million dollars this week 34 million dollars worldwide 
Some people point to the problem being the fact that Expendables 3, they said, hey, this bloody, violent, hard R action flick with every old action star you love, let's make it for family friendly. And they softened it to a PG-13, and that did not play well, and people have not returned, even though they're like, don't worry, it's bloody and violent again. Hasn't paid off. That may be the end, for now, of the Expendables franchise. Equalizer. Well, when you look at, look at this summer and you go, okay, Sylvester Stallone, 77, action star coming back and... Okay, that didn't work. Harrison Ford. Then we got Harrison Ford. You know, he's in his 80s and he's, oh, that didn't work. And then you have Keanu Reeves. He's like, I'm only 60. I'm back. And he did well. He did well. That was the highest grossing. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. And Tom Cruise, uh, a a pretty low rated, uh, low grossing Mission Impossible movie, I should say. Though I have friends who consider it excellent. And they think the Mission Impossible franchise is the greatest action film franchise, however you define that, of all time. I would argue for Mad Max or even the Bourne uh, or trilogy with Matthew da- Matt Damon, but hmm, depends how you define you know action film franchise. Uh, certainly, I've got, Bond I've got is- a guy named Pier- Pierce over here, uh, over my left shoulder here, and mm-hmm. he's saying uh, he's shaken but not stirred that you would say something like <laughs> well, that. Well, that's only if you ignore like half the films, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so so fair enough. The Bond franchise is obviously the gold standard and influenced everybody who came after. Uh, Denzel Washington has his franchise. It's Equalizer 3. That made $17 million this week. It's at $150 million worldwide. Over in China, we have the Hong Kong thriller Dust to Dust, $13 million this week. That's at the $60 million mark. And two films that will be forever linked, strangely enough, Oppenheimer and Barbie. Oppenheimer made $13 million. Barbie made $10 million. Uh, Oppenheimer is now at $926 million worldwide. I boldly said it would gross another $74 million and hit the $1 billion mark. With a reissue come early next year, come Oscar time, I bet that will happen. Gran Turismo, based on a true story, that's at $110 million. And looking for more news as we get down to the four, three, and $2 million mark, the Chinese crime drama No More Bets is about to hit $550 million. I have not seen Talk to Me yet, but my friends say that that Aussie horror flick that grossed $70 million is really worth seeing, and I'm hoping I can get a chance to check it out. Uh, But another horror film opened up, and that's It Lives Inside, and that opened to a very modest $3 million. Is it modest for dumb money? That's the Paul Dano film about, uh, what is it, GameStop. Game, what's it called? GameStop, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that whole rigmarole, that exciting stock manipulation or stock uh, regular guys take over the stock market. That got pretty good reviews, and I, I know people who've enjoyed it. That opened to a modest $3 million, but given the movie and the budget, maybe that's just great. And, and by the way, while we're on that, that, mm-hmm. that, that subject, you might recall that Lauren Shuker, when she was with the Wall Street Journal, she was on Showbiz Sandbox. That's right. If you recall that, she she was a former, and she wrote the movie. Oh, very uh, cool. Well, she co-wrote it, I guess you could say. Well, you could say whatever is accurate. <laughs> Look at the credits. <laughs> she no, she co-wrote it. She's got a writing partner. All right. Um, so there you go. Um, Sound of Freedom. We talked about that last week. How it seemed like a bunch of money that had been made overseas was suddenly added up to the total because. 
Two weeks ago, it made about two, three million dollars. One week ago, suddenly it was making twenty-one million dollars, and now this week it's back down to two million. So that was sort of money that they corralled and found and whatever. I don't think it's setting the world on fire though. In Ecuador, my friend says it's doing really well, but it made another two million dollars this week. It's at two hundred and thirteen million dollars worldwide. The vast majority of that, of course, is in North America. And Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. That's at $568 million, made another couple million dollars. Oh, and Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, the sequel to Paw Patrol, the movie. That opened overseas in previews and made $1.3 million, so that's cool to see. And the Miyazaki film, The Boy and the Heron, Miyazaki's swan song, uh, still made another million dollars. It's at $55 million and counting, along with the news that Studio Ghibli or Ghibli? How do you Ghibli. say that? Yeah. Ghibli, yeah. They Ghibli, have I don't been, know, actually. That's a good question. That's a good a question. A big chunk of that company has been purchased or taken over by Nippon TV. So it is now officially a subsidiary of Nippon TV. Uh, there are concerns about its independence, though. Nippon says it will remain artistically independent, and the studio says they will be independent. Miyazaki's son was wary of taking over and having that responsibility or whether that was what he was called to do. In any case now, Nippon TV is the the proud owner of that legendary studio, and we'll have to see how they do down the road. Can they keep going on? Remember how Disney struggled for a while after Uncle Walt died? Uncle Walt, like he's my pal. <laughs> um, but we'll have to see how Studio Ghibli or Ghibli does in the post-Miyazaki era, which will be coming someday soon, at least creatively, since this is probably his last film. And there's one film I haven't talked about yet, isn't there? Yes, I believe so. What, yes, what this, film are you a, talking about? A film like this only comes around twice in a lifetime. It's Stop Making Sense. I'm so excited. Okay. Did I talk about this movie last week? Yes, you did. I did, Quite yeah. I bit. love it. So here it is. Well, I loved it. I saw it on a... Did I? Yes. yes. No, but it... Right. We talked about whether you should see it on IMAX or not. Because oh, oh, oh so IMAX. we didn't talk about me actually seeing it. Yes, I no. saw it on IMAX on Thursday night. Oh, my God. I had sky-high expectations, and they were exceeded. I mean, it was Seriously? just a great movie. It looks so gorgeous. And as you said, the sound system in IMAX was great. There were about 20 people in the theater here in Birmingham, Alabama on a Thursday night. But we were applauding after, after performances, after numbers. I mean, it was just great. I'd forgotten that it was shot by the cinematographer who did Blade Runner. It doesn't get much better than that. The editor who does impeccable work is Lisa Day, who didn't have much of a career before or after that. She did do... Laurie Anderson's film, Home of the Brave, that makes sense. And the Chuck Berry documentary, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, which is very well thought of, but very little else other than that. However, the lighting designer, I did not realize this, the lighting designer also worked on and was the lighting designer for Einstein on the Beach in its original production in 1976 at the Metropolitan Opera, one of my favorite pieces of art of all time. And so is this movie, and I had no idea for 40 years about the link between them until the Talking Heads gave an interview and talked about that. So th they said how they all watched, saw Einstein on the Beach and loved it, and how that was one of the reasons why they reached out and used her. So very cool to see. The original Stop Making Sense grossed $5 million at the box office. That may not sound a lot to you, especially with Taylor Swift about to make $100 million in one week, but that still, right now today, makes it the 29th highest grossing film of all time. That's how little concert, concert films film. make at yeah. the box office. Yes, con in the genre yeah. of concert films and documentaries about music. If it can get to 9 million, 
That will make it top 20, even after all these years. This week, it made about $900,000, a million dollars this week. Its total is now $6.6 million worldwide. That includes $700,000 made during that TIFF and that preview and that reruns when they had that live performance like two weeks ago. So this week, you can still see it on IMAX. Come Friday, September 29th, it'll be in regular theaters. And it'll still look great. It's still well worth seeing in regular screen, absolutely, because it wasn't shot in IMAX. So, you know, see it any way you can. It's a great film. And by the way, according to Comscore, I think, or the studio that released Info, 60% of the people who went to see Stop Making Sense are under 35 years old. They weren't even born when the film originally came out. So that's just awesome to see. It really is a great film. Now, you mentioned the cinematographer of that, who was Jordan Cronenweth, who I worked with on a Michael Jackson video back in 1992, and he had uh, Parkinson's disease even then, so he, he, you know, he was... Even uh, then? Well, meaning... Yeah, he had Parkinson's disease then when you worked with him. Right. Uh, His son uh, went on to his... uh, Jeff Cronenweth... Uh, has been David Fincher's cinematographer for years, Gone Girl, Fight Club, The Social Network. Uh, he's he's a, a very well-known cinematographer as well. So those two, uh, it's like a cinematography family. And I forgot to mention her name. It's Beverly Emmons, who is the lighting designer for Stop Making Sense. She's had a great career in theater and stuff like that. Um, so very cool to see. Yeah, just a great, great film, I must say. Uh, and a see, total joy. Do you see the talking I, heads getting back together again? Oh, no, absolutely not. Even though they seem to be talking now? Uh, all right. <laughs> oh, no pun intended. We no have no intended. writers. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> no pun intended. We have no pure. writers. They're not back yet. I know you think the strike is over, but they can't officially come to work. So all of Sperling's jokes are made by Sperling himself. No, that was an accidental joke, which kind of like... I, uh, as all ways, your jokes are. Yes, but by the way, for those who, who want to know when Lauren Shuker was on this program, she was working for the Wall Street Journal March 29th, 2010. She had yet to marry Jason Blum, and uh, now her name is Lauren Shuker Blum, and she was on episode 47. <laughs> maybe when we're old, which we already are, maybe when we're old, we'll rewatch all our old podcasts and talk about them. <laughs> oh my god but only if they're i remember IMAX. when we talked about dvds <laughs> actually DVD? believe it or not do you know what she was do you know what she was here to talk about no what uh, 3d oh there you go <laughs> <laughs> was she extolling his virtues it's gonna I take over no, the world uh, i hope she wasn't uh yeah we were on the right side of history on that one we're like yeah no <laughs> don't get excited about 3d once movie once in a while they really make a big effort otherwise it's pain in the neck people do not want to watch movie with 3d glasses sorry no and we were right for a change i hope we'll be right about the strike well michael i get the sense that you want me to talk about the the uh well some strike news so let's talk about sag after that's really what you want to talk about right michael Keep going. Okay, actually, you want to talk about the Writers Guild of America, which has reached a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or the shorter version is AMPTP. So if the actors follow suit, it looks like a tentative deal has been reached, and if the actors follow suit, our long national nightmare will be over. Naturally, we wanted an expert to weigh in on this, so we reached out to the one and the only Jonathan Handel. Jonathan is senior counsel at... 
Feig Finkel, LLP, where his expertise on entertainment, guilds, journalism, and tech is prized. He's also the author of Hollywood on Strike, a detailed analysis of the last time the Writers Guild of America went on strike in 2007-2008. Handel is a contributing writer at the website Puck. Head to puck.news to read his feature, Hollywood's Post-Writers Strike Reality, co-written with Matthew Bellany. It's a great analysis, and you can be certain there will be many follow-ups in the days to come. You can explore his personal website at jhandle.com, and we'll have links to all of this in our show notes. So, Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to join us, and congratulations on your new position at Feig Finkel. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, of course, and to be, to be back with you, I should say. And I am very excited about joining Feig Finkel. It's an entertainment law boutique, and so... The sorts of things that I do, the sorts of things that they do, are very complementary, uh, and and of course there's overlap as well. I, I, it's really a nice fit. Um, uh, two of the Feig and Finkel, the two senior partners, are uh, uh, longtime friends, people I've I've worked with uh, in the case of Eric Feig, and um, there are three other partners, three associates, and growing. Well, excuse my ignorance. Uh, what does it mean to be a transactional entertainment law firm? Uh, that's as distinguished from litigation. So in other words, we do deals. We help negotiate deals. We draft contracts. We, we negotiate contracts that have been drafted by studios or producers on the, on the other side, uh, as opposed to folks that sue over uh, contracts or, or anything else. So you don't get to say you're out of order. You don't get to say that? Uh, you know what? We do say that, or something like that, but not. Uh, but there's no judge to enforce it. It's more like actually the uh, what we say is that's not customary. That's not reasonable. <laughs> well, or, that's as, or as I have said sometimes, um, there simply is no alternative universe in which we're going to agree to that. <laughs> <laughs> Showing the multiverse, you're not accepting that idea yet, at least not contractually. Uh, we'll accept the multiverse, but there isn't there isn't any universe in the multiverse where I would accept certain things, and uh, that message gets through sometimes. So there is a tentative deal struck between the WGA and the studios and streamers. Um, the details are not out there yet, but I assume you know them all. Uh, but the guild said their gains were, as you said, meaningful, but they aren't yet claiming historic. Are they just trying to tamp down expectations, or I, I what's your sense? I thought they did claim historic. Maybe I maybe um, we can get Tass Sperling with looking up the language I, while we I will do that while we debate the issue. Oh, I got uh, that from your article that they were not yet using the word historic from the uh, Puck well, News. I, uh, I that was co-authored with Matt, so I'll just blame him if we got it wrong. Uh, why not? But um, I, you know, the we can talk a bit about the details and and about the the nature of this. I mean, this is a historic dual strike. Um, you know what's historic? I mean, it's words on paper. It's a, it's a contract. Um, I, I it's sometimes it's hard to think of them as as historic per se. But they, you know, and the other thing, of course, is that you know someone asked me earlier today, uh, did the writers get everything they want? And of course, the answer is no. Uh, a negotiation is not a shopping spree. You don't get everything you want, or even everything necessarily that you feel you deserve. But I think the writers got. Uh, some things here that uh, people were surprised they were were able to achieve, uh, such as What's, well, what? are the such surprises? As, well, such as some guardrails around AI, 
Uh, now we don't know what the guardrails are yet because they, we, we, I know some of the details, but not, not all of them by any means. Uh, we do know that in AI, that there was a, uh, apparently, we're told uh, by sources, a significant issue left unaddressed. Uh, and that is the issue of using writers' scripts as training material for AI systems, for large language models. Uh, the reason that, uh, that chat GPT and other uh, bots of this sort are able to, to write like a person, more or less, is that they read writing written by people. And if you want them to write screenplays, they got to read screenplays. Uh, the writers don't want them reading their screenplays, certainly not without compensation, maybe not at all. Um, we don't quite, we don't know exactly what position they were taking, but w apparently where they left things was that each side reserves its position. In other words, they're agreeing to disagree and kick the can down the road on that sub issue at the moment. Another area that the Writers Guild achieved in that was, uh, an uphill fight is the issue of success-based residuals. Mm -hmm. So stream in streaming. Now streaming programs get residuals already. They get, res they, they were introduced in 2014. They were improved in 17 and 20, and in 23, for that matter, earlier this year, by the Directors Guild, uh, which particularly improved the foreign residual for platforms like Netflix, uh, Amazon, and Disney that have foreign operations. Uh, the writers, what the writers and the actors wanted or want was all of that, plus Hits. for shows that are successful, they want an additional residual. Now, what the Writers Guild got, apparently, is that for the top shows, whether that's the top 10 or top 10% or 15%, whatever the definition is, and we don't quite, we don't know exactly, but whatever the top shows are, they would get the existing residual plus an additional percentage of the existing residual. So if the existing residual is say $15,000 in the first year of, of use on the, on the platform, uh, they would get an additional, you know, whatever it is, third, 25%. We don't, we don't know. The Screen Actors Guild SAG-AFTRA wants a very different approach. Uh, they want a success-based residual that's measured not by the existing residual and not by the revenue that the producer gets for licensing or selling the show to Netflix or Disney+. Plus. They want a residual that's measured by the revenue that the platform itself makes from its subscribers. So like so a 2% of- That's where the money of, is. Yeah. Right, that wouldn't be closer to the money source exactly. Um, you know, so if you have a million subscribers and they pay fifteen dollars each a month, that's fifteen million a month. And if you're doing it on a quarterly basis, that's three months. That's a pool of forty-five million. They want. They were saying they want two percent of that pool to be allocated, uh, and they would presumably compromise on the two percent. But they they want it to be allocated among the uh, actors on the on the hit shows, whatever the definition of that is. Now. There are two issues here. One is presumably what SAG is looking for is more money than maybe what the Writers Guild got, even if you translate it into the, you know, for the actors. And then the other is the difference in approach. So the question is whether the money will be good enough for the actors that they would be willing to compromise on the approach. There'll be a lot of pressure on them to take this, uh, an approach that's similar to the Writers Guild by the same token they've said, you know, each union stand, uh, stands on its own feet. We are not going to accept what's called pattern bargaining and just have it crammed down our throats. There'll, there'll be a lot of pressure on that issue. Which is the writers said as well, and perhaps successfully. Um, and of course, uh, 
The other wrinkle is that streamers are now starting to look more like traditional cable channels. They all have tiers now where there is advertising. Almost all of them do. Uh, so that's an interesting wrinkle because, all right, now there is actual revenue coming from that show that's airing on the on the website. So that's uh, it's not paid just to be on that show, but that's a new wrinkle and a revenue stream that they'll want to get their fingers into. Well, it becomes part of the revenue, part of that platform revenue. So that $15 a month example I gave uh, times a million, 15 million times three is 45 million. That assumes that subscriber revenue, the sub fees were the only revenue in our, in our example. But if they're also getting 10 million a quarter in advertising revenue, then that pool is um, bigger, you know, 55 million rather than 45 million, whatever the numbers might be. Uh, so uh, let's go on to AI and then to a, uh, a, a surprise dark horse. Uh, AI. Uh, the actors are concerned, uh, not about scripts being written by AI particularly per se, but they're concerned about, uh, synthetic actors, either totally synthetic actors that don't resemble anyone, like but they take jobs like what? Like me. Like I mean, I basically, when I act, it's pre, you could, it's synthetic. It's not real acting. There you go. <laughs> yeah. I've always thought that about you actually, you know, it's, uh, and we, we, you know, we're doing this with a video, so it's, uh, ourselves. So the, the proof is out there, but, uh, yeah, either a completely synthetic, uh, visage or a digital replica, a replica of an existing actor based on a scan. James Dean um, or somebody. Yeah. Well, a dead one or a live one, yeah. uh, you know, as well. So there are different. There are different issues with the estate of James Dean versus a live actor who's being pressured to, you know, be scanned. And how is that scan going to get used? And are they competing against themselves? And are they getting compensated for that? So a lot of you know, sort of sub issues packed into it. But you know, these are AI. Everyone's afraid of being replaced by bots now. Uh, residuals are endlessly complicated and endlessly fascinating to people who are you know a bit wonky. Or who you know, and the fact that they're complex and that they're unique to entertainment, but but the issue of basic wage increases, the writers wanted six percent. The the directors settled at five. Presumably, the writers and have settled somewhere between five and six with the studios. We don't know the number. Um, boring issue, right? It's just about dollars and you know numbers and percentages. Uh, except here's the thing: SAG wanted fifteen percent. SAG-AFTRA did. They're, they they came down to 11. The studios were still offering five as of the last time they interacted. Um, the SAG wants uh, a catch-up for the uh, in incredible inflation that we had the last several years. They've said quite explicitly, we will not take a deal where our members make less in real dollar terms in three years than they made three years ago. And here's why this is the joker in the deck. This is why this may be the toughest problem of all, even though it doesn't glitter the way AI and residuals do. It turns out, when you do the math, that the increase in basic wages is 85 to 90% of the cost of the entire proposal. The entire mm, package, 85% okay. of that. We, and studios are very concerned about the bottom line, of course. Not only that, as if that's not enough, whatever is agreed to here will influence and probably set pattern for no fewer than four other contracts. One of them is the video game contract that SAG is probably going to strike against this week, uh, where the companies, two of which are Warners and Disney, the others of which are, you know, unique to video games like, you know, EA and Activision. Um, uh, again, in the bid ask is five and 11. Um, but there are three more contracts coming up next year in the entertainment in industry that all 
uh, have basic wages and also AI as issues. First is the sag after net code, which covers talk shows, reality, game, uh, and so- soap operas. Um, some of us wouldn't cry if that contract got struck. Hmm. Uh, it might be a blessing uh, to not have to see, uh, you know, some of the shows that in the reality genre that, you know, how much Shark Week can you stand? But the other two contracts, kidding aside, are the IATSE, IATSE, the crew agreement. Uh, if they go on strike, the industry shuts down immediately. And the Teamsters agreement, they haul, they drive the trucks that haul the equipment and cameras. If they go on strike, the industry shuts down immediately. They Casting directors are Teamsters. It's not just truck drivers. Uh, that, that contract may not be up next year. I'm not sure. It's a separate contract than the than the so-called black book uh, truck driving contract. Okay. Uh, I'm not 100% sure whether it's up or not. But the, the, the big issue is, uh, you know, it has always been the uh, truck driving traditional truck driving contract for Teamsters 399. And um, what you're looking at there is those unions, as well as SAG itself for the net code, are going to be looking at what SAG gets in this agreement. And the studios know it, which means that not only is it 85 or 90% of this package, it's overwhelmingly, you know, uh, heavy, a hefty part of, you know, three other agreements. And uh, then there's AI, uh, SAG net code will concern AI for some of the same reasons as the scripted uh, one that's struck right now. Um, the IATSE, certain locals may not be particularly affected, the gaffers, the grips, but editors, yeah. sound editors, pr- probably production designers, and probably directors of photography are vulnerable to uh, partial or complete displacement by AI. And then finally, the Teamsters, they don't. They're not involved in generating content. So this generative AI that we've been talking about is not a concern to them uh, specifically, but they are concerned with a different form of AI, which is autonomous vehicles. Yeah, self-driving, self-driving trucks. trucks. Yeah, that's right. And um, it used to be you had to go, you know, to see many of those self-driving cars. You had to go to the Bay Area or some or Vegas, which is where I drove one. Uh, now you can go to Santa Monica, California. <laughs> That starting, I think, in a week, you can go to anywhere in Los Angeles. And Waymo is running, uh, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet, the owner of Google, the parent of Google. Uh, Waymo will be running self-driving taxis that will rub the Teamster's nose in the uh, threat of self-driving trucks. And there is at least one company out there, I believe, I forget the name of the company, that uh, uh, in the car, in the self-driving vehicle business that is specifically focused on self-driving trucks. Oh yeah, that's so that's a, a huge threat. market. Yeah. Well, you may have one market. truck with everybody other truck behind it being led by that first truck. Well, um, well that's the yeah, the convoy issue haul, especially yeah. for long haul. But uh for short haul, I don't know that that they'd convoy, but if you can if you can run taxis and if you can run long haul trucks, you probably can run short haul and it's a threat to uh, Teamsters employment. So we are, you know, this is not just a labor summer or labor year. It's a labor biennial or something, and it's just, uh, you know, it's going to continue. Just going back to the writer's strike for a second, or the writers, the WGA, they announced a deal on Sunday that was obviously driven by, uh, you know, the studios and the AMPTP wanting to announce something by, by Sunday. Well, they, made, they but, made a deal. But is it... Is it well, well, they wanted to, they, they set themselves a sort of, you know, artificial deadline of the Jewish holiday, <clears throat> which a lot of people thought meant... Oh, they'll what they can work till midnight. Uh, but no, because the Jewish holiday is Monday. No, Jewish holidays start at sundown Sunset. on the night yeah. before. 
So 648 was their deadline. And indeed at 710, we saw a press release. No, my question really is, is, is it usual to say, oh, we've got a deal. We'll tell you the details later. Yes. Yes. Um, the details don't go out uh, until um, the board has voted on the deal. Okay. They traditionally do not release the DGA, for example, earlier this year, didn't release details until their board had voted. And they don't release the um, the summary, which is somewhat more detailed than, uh, than the press release is likely to be. The summary that goes to members, they don't release that till they send it to the members, which is going to be a few days later once they prepared it. And they don't release the actual contract language, which is 50 to 70 pages, which uh, almost nobody in the press corps understands, really nobody uh, except me. Um, honestly, and and almost no entertainment lawyers understand, except entertainment labor lawyers. Uh, that doesn't get released for probably for some weeks. But and looking, the devil can be in the details. But looking Sorry, at what ahead. the writers are talking about, uh, one thing we know they didn't get was a strike recognition clause. They failed to get that involved included in their in their deal. They, does, they were never going to get that. That was well, a, does, that was a. Right. So my question is, does that mean they must cross the picket lines of SAG-AFTRA or can they respect that strike as they have said they wanted to do until they wouldn't go back to work until the actors go back to work? They, they would have to cross picket lines if they're being asked to work on site. Um, you know, of course, uh, in writer's rooms, uh, you know, they, they would work on, they often would work on site. Um, there would probably, there might well be an accommodation to uh, continued picket lines if it comes to that, where where when you have to work together, people would work on Zoom. That's what I, I would expect that some showrunners would say, because it's really up to the showrunners to say, does, do they want the writers in the room physically together uh, or uh, is the Zoom meeting okay? But they would go back to work no matter what, where, however they did at home or work. They can't say we're going to respect the actor strike and not work. Like they'd said, they were going to both not go back to work until the other got a deal. They can't do that. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what they didn't get. Uh, none of the above-the-line unions have that. Uh, certain of the IA locals do have a, uh, uh, a, a strike respect clause. But the directors, directors, actors, writers don't have it. They were never going to get it. It was a uh, that was you know kind of a something they can give away, <laughs> right? It was it was a late added demand. It was not in their original demands. They added it to put additional pressure on the studios and sort of probably to piss them off, which it did. And um, you know they weren't going to get it. But social media played a big role in this particular strike. Unlike say two thousand seven, two thousand eight, uh, you could be shamed. Uh, no. Well, where you had you had early social you had early social media in 0708. I mean, remember blogs, remember Nikki Fink, right? Uh, so you know there was online an online uh, you know presence to those uh, to that strike and to the SAG stalemate that ensued for a year. But you know the country the social media's got media has gotten a lot more integrated into the life of the country. It's more viral, and the country's gotten more polarized. The tone and the tenor and the volume on social media of all uh, volume, both in the sense of the loudness and the quantity, have all increased dramatically since then. You're quite right, and um, you know there 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 was a lot of social media shaming. I mean, we saw that with the talk shows attempting to go back, and you know Drew and uh, and Bill Marr and Drew Barrymore, and then having to walk that back. 
Well, now, um, the better the deal the writers got as we get all the details, the more of an opportunity it provides for SAG-AFTRA to build on that. But I'm wondering about the DGA. The better the deal the writers get and then SAG-AFTRA, is that going to make the directors feel like perhaps they screwed themselves over, you know, that they maybe gave too, too easy a deal? Will they have buyer's remorse? They, um, they certainly, three years from now, will be looking to get what they didn't get. Um, whether they'll push for a reopener is an interesting question. Uh, to reopen negotiations and get, you know, get their deal amended, uh, improved, uh, you know, soon uh, is possible. I don't know. I wish them luck. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think there will be some, there'll be some, you know, buyer's remorse about it. Do you, when do you think SAG-AFTRA, my, my gut tells me SAG-AFTRA is a, a tentative deal is reached sometime before the end of October. Yeah, I mean, I think it takes, you know, so they'll start, I, I think, that I, I anticipate that they would start next week, October 2nd, and I think it'll take uh, two to three weeks of negotiating because of the, uh, un, under the best assumptions. Will, will it require the CEOs the way it did with the writers? Probably at at, the, at some point, yes, because um, they're reaching agreement on the basic wage increases, and uh, and maybe on the residuals is uh, is going to require the CEOs. But um, you know, the basic wage increases it's it's really a it's a new, it's a heavy lift dollar wise. But they just uh, there's going to be. I mean, look, the idea that you could starve starve the writers out who lasted two years without agents in their fight against the agencies. And the idea that you can starve actors out who go, you know, months between actors. They're starving already. <laughs> they're starving already. I mean, it was uh, the idea that you could starve these people out was a doomed mission to a dead planet. It, it just was <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, so, you know, I, but I think the studios, among the things that the studios will want to salvage is the uh, possibility of having actors promote the fall movies, which, you know, which is to say Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, period thanks, starting Thanksgiving and extending through Christmas, uh, second biggest movie season of the year. And it was bad enough that the actors couldn't promote during the summer or the trifecta of film festivals at the uh, beginning of uh, September. So I think there'll be pressure to, uh, to get a deal done. Well, Jonathan, we really love having you. Your insight. Once more details come out, we hope to have you back on the show. But we're going to bring you back later at the end of the show for Inside Baseball. So you go back into the green room and we'll call you out when Inside Baseball is ready. Okay. That sounds great. Thanks. That was great of Jonathan to join us to talk about the strike. We'll have him later in the show. He's in the green room. Have we stocked the green room with green tea and, you know, some treats for him? You know, we, we, uh, with the strike, the craft services team will not cross the picket uh, line. And so also- uh, He's on his own. I, he's on I'm, his own. I'm watching my weight. So I, I told them no M&Ms and Twizzlers and licorice. So <laughs> yeah. We've or all been watching your weight. Matter. So I'm glad you're doing that. <laughs> no, that's right. Well, it, it, it must be time for Big Deal Big Whoop, isn't it? Yes, it is. Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, it's a huge deal here in the U.S. I'm just going to say that. Streaming video on Netflix or Disney Plus is so great because you don't have to watch any ads. Wait, strike that. Love that. Yeah, strike that. You don't have to watch a lot of ads. Amazon will include ads in its prime video streaming service beginning in early 2024. If you don't want to watch any ads, you can pay a 
fee on top of your Amazon Prime membership of $3 a month in the US. That means all the major streamers include an ad-supported tier. Only Apple remains ad-free, and that's probably because they don't want to start selling ads. They're not an ad sales company. Uh, So my question, is this a big deal or a big whoop? But before you answer that question, Michael, just Mm -hmm. remember, this segment, big deal or big whoop, is brought to you by Powder Milk Biscuits. Heavens, they're tasty and expeditious. Powder Milk Biscuits, available wherever biscuits are sold. Oh, where are biscuits sold? I don't, I don't know if they sell them anymore. Um, is it a big deal? No, it's not. It's a big whoop because everybody else done it. It seemed like only a matter of time. And you know what? Um, Apple probably might someday will say, we can make more money. Maybe we should bother to launch an, an ad service. <laughs> so I wouldn't put it past them. No, no, I'm sure they will. They're going to get an yeah. outside. $175 isn't enough. You got to pay more to not have ads. How much do you want? <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah, well, they're losing money on uh, Amazon Prime anyway. Uh, but you know, here, here's the thing. Uh, I think I love the way this story was covered. Depends on which way you looked at it. Uh, uh, there were the tech guys who said, uh, yeah, Amazon prime adds $3 a month, <laughs> right? The entertainment guy said, Amazon adds, adds to prime. <laughs> it's just like, depending on which way you were looking <laughs> at it, that was the lead of the story. Oh, um, yeah. but you know, speaking of, of, uh, well, let's just stick with, uh, streaming, I guess, uh, still, or at least TV HBO. I mean, I, I mean, let's stick HBO max. I, I don't know what they call it anymore. Okay. Uh, max, I don't know, whatever they call it. They're adding a live sports tier. So anyone subscribing to max will get access to live sports events carried on their legacy cable channels, TBS, TNT, and so on. People will have free access for a few months if they already subscribe and then they can add it, for, you know, for $10 a month or as what the cable providers are saying is like, what, seriously, you're just trying to kill us off sooner? Seriously? Okay. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal if you're a cable company. Yeah, they're basically saying, cut the cord. Stop, stop dealing with your cable company. Come to us. Yes. You know, I, I could just see the, the, the cable operators going, you know, we're still here. We can still hear you. <laughs> it's like, come yeah, on. You, we're still sending you $2 billion this year, you know? Don't yeah. you want that $2 billion? The Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus know you're not listening to an episode from 2005. This is a 2023 episode. The Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus is just launching a new tour. And mon dieu, they won't feature any performing animals. So essentially what we're talking about here is a clown parade, right? Is that what we're talking about? Oh, wait, no. They're putting the Cirque in circus, or rather the Cirque du Soleil. People simply don't enjoy animals being dragged from town to town anymore, or not enough to make it worth the company's while. So now they've dropped the elephants and the bears and the lion taming. But they still have clowns and entertainment and trapeze artists and more. As a bonus for people sick of Cirque du Soleil, by the way, there's no plot, okay? Which I found funny because I'm always like, <laughs> wait, there's a plot here? There is a plot. What is the plot? I have no idea what the... I only figure it out a quarter of the way through the show. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess there's a plot. Like, it doesn't really make any sense, but okay. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's a storied franchise. Once circuses were, you know, a dominant form of entertainment way back in the turn of the last century. Um, their heyday has long come and gone, but it's still a billion dollar business. A lot of money's made and Ringling Brothers needs to keep up with the times. And I think they found out a way to do it. We should also point out it's probably a lot cheaper not to have to be moving all those animals from town to town. It's a lot cheaper to feed people than it is bears. 
and elephants. You know, that's got to really reduce their expenses. I think that's a significant cut in savings. And that's where all the entertainment and fun is. So uh, hopefully it'll work and they'll keep people in business and be able to travel the country and put up the big top. You know, it's cheaper unless you feed the people to the bears and the lions, in which case you don't have to feed the people. You see, it's <laughs> it's just just saying you just got to find new people. In any case, speaking of people, Rupert Murdoch has retired at the age of 92. He's no longer the chairman of Fox. So I, really, that's full stop. Big deal or big whoop. Or as he like to say, huh, what? Huh? What do you say? Oh, nice. A little ageism joke. Good for you. Um, big whoop. <laughs> oh, come on. Right? His son, Lachlan, has been pretty much in charge for about the, the last eight to 10 years. And yeah. he remains the head of the multinational corporation of whatever parts of News Corp the News Corp still owns. Rupert is elevated to emirate, em, em, emeritus or whatever his title may be. Uh, I don't think it's going to change much of anything the way it's been the last five or so years. So I think this is a big whoop. It's the end of an era. Thank God. By the way, you say it's ageism, but I have to say more and more lately, I've been like, what? What? I can't hear. What? Speak up. I can't hear people. I don't know what it is, but I'm constantly asking people to repeat themselves. I think people are just mumbling around me. I keep t- saying, to them, you're mumbling. They're like, no, we're not mumbling. You just that's, what all, that's what all old people say. Everybody mumbles now. They never mumble when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Jeez Louise. Uh, Oscar winning director Agnieszka Holland is facing right wing attacks from the Polish government and even death threats for her latest film. The film Green Border was an award winner at Venice and highly praised for its nuanced and empathetic look at migrants and how they are treated both in Poland and in Europe in general. But the right wing Polish government is treating the film as basically an attack on Poland itself, demonizing Holland demanding that theaters screen a positive pro-government message before any showings of the film and generating a storm of controversy. Holland is facing debt, uh, and this is Agnieszka Holland, Holland is facing death threats and now needs security protection, which, needless to say, is not being provided by the police. In the U.S., the Directors Guild of America publicly uh, publicly supported Holland. Remember, she did work here in the U.S., and uh, they criticized the Polish government for its actions. The movie opened this weekend in the country of 100, it had 137,000 admissions in Poland, the most for a Polish film so far in 2023. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal that people turned out for the movie. Maybe the government helped bring attention to it. Uh, she's a major director. I think the DGA was showing solidarity with the director, not simply because she happened to work in America. At one point, they have issued similar statements in support of directors in Iran and elsewhere who faced uh, suppression or prison time despite uh, not having made Hollywood movies. So it's really just showing solidarity with the director. She made a movie. People want to criticize the movie. That's fine. But demonizing her and really driving hatred and, and attacks against her is beyond the pale, but uh, the Polish government is authoritarian, becoming increasingly anti-democratic. But it's sad because they have done such a good job um, of providing refuge for Ukrainian people who are fleeing war zones. Uh, But of course, those people are very similar to them, and they're different from the people coming from other countries like Belarus that Poland sees as others. So it's it's an ugly situation there. She's shining an important spotlight on it. I'm glad people are going to see the movie and uh, even if somebody makes a movie you hate or think is hateful, uh, death threats are never a nice thing. And it's in black and white, so I almost wonder if the, if the Polish government said nothing about it, whether anybody would know anything about it. Um, you know, it's the you know the art film problem. How do you get people to see a movie? You need them to know about it. Well, congratulations, Poland. You're finding out sometimes not talking about something is actually better than publicizing it by 
I, you know, stand, standing in opposition to it. It's the Barbra Streisand effect. Correct. Um, That's right. Now, yeah, and by the way, you're right. Uh, Poland, Hungary, all of these, not all of these, many of these European countries are becoming more and more authoritarian rather than democratic. It's kind of sad to see. Uh, now, let's move on to another, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it a continent, really? Korea. Uh, the Cape, Korea. It's another continent. Korea. Uh, the K-pop, no, well, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, the K-pop supergroup BTS, a.k.a. the Bulletproof Boy Scouts. Is that really what that stands for? Bulletproof Boy Scouts? No. It's one of their, yeah, one of their nicknames, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. they're making it's big not, It's not English, for God's sakes. It's in Korean. <laughs> okay, all right. They're, they're putting that bulletproof nickname to the test. When all the members fulfill their required military duty, only one member is in uniform now, but they'll all be enlisted soon and wind up their duties by 2025. Meanwhile, the band's record label is releasing solo albums by all seven young men to considerable success as a stopgap. And now they've announced that all seven members have re-upped their contracts with the company Hybe. Those contracts were set to end in 2025. So this is confirmation that they will be working as a group beyond that year. Is this a big deal or a big whoop or just smooth like butter? Uh, it's a big deal for the company, a big whoop for everyone else. Not everyone's solo albums have come out yet, but that's the plan. Uh, their previous contract was for seven years, and that would have ended in 2025. Obviously, they have re-upped uh, two years before that date. It's not clear how long this contract duration is for. Is it another seven years, five years, three years? But at least they know there will be a little BTS uh, in 2025 and 2026. So fans can take comfort in that. And the company can certainly take comfort and hope their stock price gets pushed up by this news. Well, Michael, that wraps up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and moves us right along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And if I had a, a sound effect of a door opening, I would do that here and invite Jonathan Handel back in. <laughs> <laughs> But here I am without the sound effects. <laughs> exactly. Now, uh, comedian and author uh, Sarah Silverman, along with other issues, is suing OpenAI for, for training ChatGPT by using her book and other copyrighted works. Now the response of the company shows how the court case might be argued. It's all part of the discussion of AI, fair use, copyright, more. To discuss all this, of course, we have Jonathan here. So... I, I don't know. Where do you want to start? Jonathan, here we go. We, got, we know you just have two minutes before you get. You have to run. So let me just ask you a question. It's come out in the proceedings that uh, when they've been training these uh, systems like ChatGPT and o OpenAI and other stuff, that they are using copyrighted works. And in fact, it seems apparent, we're not through with discovery, that they've been using accessing pirated copies of copyrighted works online. So they've had two piles of stuff that they've used to train these that we know of. One is basically Project Gutenberg, a bunch of books that are in the public domain that people have posted online. Nobody, that's all fine. But this other pile of books is apparently contemporary books that are copyrighted, but are available online via pirated websites. And these companies, at least in one case, said, yes, we access this pile of books that is clearly, we now know, Pirated copies of legal books. So is it possible, this is our one question, is it possible to legally use something that has been illegally obtained? Can you use, you know, a pile of stuff that you didn't legally have access to, even if you're using it in a fair use way? It's like, yes, if you 
obtained it in a fair use way, you could have used it, but you didn't. You went to a pirated website where that stuff has been stolen and being made available illegally to people. There's a hypothesis on top of a possibility on to- inside a conundrum, I guess. Let's let's start with non-pirated works first and, and understand the the issues in play. Uh, the the a person can read other people's works and then write a work that's in the style of or learn from it. Look at the clever like Hemingway, like Hemingway or Dylan, yeah, whoever, whoever it might be, Raymond Chandler. Um, you can't, you know, if you start take if you take a a word or two from Chandler, that's one thing. Maybe a line. If you start taking, you know, more stuff, at some point you may cross you cross the line into infringement. Um, but there it is. However, the question is, if a machine reads not, you know, a hundred works that a person could read in a, in a few years, but reads, you know, a hundred million that the machine can read in less than no time. Whatever, however much time it takes, but not near, not a lot. Does the change in scale result in a uh, change in nature such that the law should prohibit it? So the issues are 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 this. First of all, for the for the for the AI program, the large language model like Chat GPT, to read something, they have to copy that something. Uh, they have to make a copy of that something that the software uh, then can ingest. So is that copying? Uh, unlawful. You were never given the right to copy uh, someone else's copyrighted work. Um, And then the deeper question that maybe that the first one hangs off of is um, when you then ingest it and use it to to tune mathematical parameters in the model to to wait to, you know, this particular parameter is weighted 0.3578 and this one's 1.243. And that sort of thing is going to allow you to generate you know, work in the nature of Raymond Chandler or or just work that sounds like it's a person writing it, um, is that resulting work or even the model itself a derivative work of the original work uh, or all those 100 million original works? Now, normally a derivative work is I take your novel, uh, I, may, I translate it into French. If I have a license from you, that's fine. If I don't, I'm created an infringing derivative work. I take your novel, I write a screenplay, and then I turn that screenplay into a movie. The screenplay and the movie are both infringing works if it's not like, if I don't have the movie rights to your book. Um, I take your book and I make an illustrated edition. I make a Braille edition. I make an, an abridged edition. All these kinds of things. That's what derivative works are. This kind of work uh, that ChatGPT is creating, it's, it's internal mathematical model, and then it's output. Are unknown to the law. This is an unknown. This is an open legal question. Now, then you add, uh, and likewise with the lawsuits filed against uh, generative AI systems that generate illustrations, photorealistic or artistic or whatever, in the style of Picasso, or just a realistic view of a cat, you know, doing this, that, and the other thing. If you then add to that, though, the, the this issue of the works were obtained in a pirated way. Um, there probably there may be additional legal exposure there uh, for you know downloading from a I mean technically you know downloading pirated works from a, from a pirate site is unlawful you know just like uh, the uploading Not was in- I mean in practice they they prosecute if anyone they prosecute they go after and prosecute the uploader the person people who have either were running the site or and knowing and knowing this is going on 
or people who are uploading, you know, tons of, you know, Hollywood movies and things. The downloaders seldom get prosecuted, but here- They do get letters. They do get letters saying, stop what you're doing. They do get, they're threatened to turn off their internet access and things. We've had that over the years. Um, but does, does it point to the unreasonableness or the perhaps the illegal nature of it that these companies probably cannot tell you exactly what they've accessed? They could not provide a list of the books that they have accessed. They don't, don't have- I don't know that that's true. I don't know why they shouldn't be able to provide- a list of problems. I know this. I know this. They cannot tell you which work influenced which mathematical parameter in the model. That is established, uh, right? At, at least they generally can't. There, there are wor- there is work being done. I investigated this. There is technological work being done on creating more auditable systems. And in fact, uh, Google's Bard has some auditability in it because when you do a Google search and you're using Bard as well as regular Google search, Bard will give you its summary. And then it will give you the websites that it relied on. So it's not the case that they can't tell. And certainly, uh, you can maintain an audit trail of which, what you downloaded, which actually, you know, in the course of, a, of the, hundred, the 100 million websites I visited were as follows. The, um, these are a lot of complicated technical issues. And how in general do the courts handle stuff that's super complicated technically or scientifically? It seems like in America, usually it's like each side gets to bring in an expert witness and the court just listens to it. I think in some other countries, the courts themselves bring in uh, a neutral expert witness to help the court in, in understanding and illuminating these issues. Is that something that might happen here? Or how, how are they going to, because obviously it's new to judges just like it is to most regular folks. American courts could uh, have, I believe, have the power to do that, uh, but but relatively seldom do uh, uh, bring in their own neutral expert. Uh, they they usually do rely on existing, you know, on the parties to bring in experts. Does that seem like the best idea to you? It may be a good idea. It's very um, it's very hard for the courts to uh, to handle, and you get unstable decisions. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you. Yep. All right. Goodbye, guys. All right. So Jonathan had to run. He's got like 10 or 15 different interviews lined up right now. I can't imagine why. What do you think is causing that? (laughs) We just want to make sure people understand what we're talking about. Again, a bunch of writers are suing. There are multiple class action lawsuits being filed against systems like ChatGPT. And there have been recent court rulings, like from the Copyright Office, that said, Look, um, you cannot copyright AI-generated work. There must be a human involved. So there are all sorts of different issues that are coming to a fore with all this stuff that's being generated by ChatGPT and other stuff like it. Uh, the Silverman case says they believe ChatGPT was trained with their copyrighted work, and, that, and thus it constitutes a derivative work and an infringement of their copyright. Now, in response, OpenAI says, look, she published a humor book, to say that our system, that when you ask it a question, is somehow, you know, uh, derivative of her humor book that stretches the legal term far beyond the, the breaking point. That's their argument. But she's not the only one. Within days of her lawsuit, another one emerged with hundreds of authors filing suit against Meta and OpenAI in another proposed class action lawsuit. Michael Chabon was involved in that one. They say, look, you trained your large language models on our copyrighted work without permission or compensation, and that does not constitute fair use. Then a few days later, a third lawsuit against OpenAI, John Grisham, George R.R. R. Martin, Jody Picoult, etc., are all involved in the 
these suits. And they say, look, it's very clear that they are specifically infringing on our rights. And they talk about the different stuff that's going on. Now, I spoke to a person who's an expert in this stuff. And they were explaining to me, now look, you know, he's very pro-science. He's like, look, these things do not read The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and think about the book. They're only using it line by line, sentence by sentence. And I said, well, why not just train them on public domain stuff? And I guess the argument is if you queried chat GPT and it was only trained on Shakespeare and Dickens, you'd ask him a question. He would say, forsooth. Um, but no, perhaps not. Um, what, what turns out is like, well, could they have trained this stuff with just one line from copyrighted material? Maybe one line from a Michael Chabon novel or three lines from a John Gershom novel and two lines. Nobody would argue that that wasn't fair use. That would clearly be within the fair use realm. However, they didn't. They consumed the whole book. And he says, well, maybe a judge will care that he's not consuming the book as a whole. But the way that some of these authors found out that uh, they, they had consumed the entire book was they, would at, they went to chat GPT and said, tell me about you know, minor, minor characters that may have appeared on two pages within the book. And sure enough, exactly. chat GPT comes back with like a whole dissertation on these characters. <laughs> yeah. Right, because my experts said, well, now look, if they summarized the book, they may have just read reviews. And I'm like, so they stole other stuff. How is that a good defense? But he's like, well, but it's stuff that you can get in uh, areas like Wikipedia and reviews, and you can make your own summary, and that's like, would be fine for class and might be fine here. But like you said. Yeah. It's precisely why yeah, the like you said, the authors characters. Run, Right. They're like, look at this. Nobody's writing about this character in a review and it's not on Wikipedia. Clearly, they consumed the book in its entirety. Uh, uh, Music Business Worldwide, which is a great website, pointed out to four elements in fair use of a copyrighted work. There are four elements where you can say this constitutes or does not constitute fair use. And they point out that two of them may be helpful to the language learning systems and two of them may be helpful for the authors and other people suing. For example, uh, two of them are how much, how, what amount and what substantiality of the work was taken. In this case, it's all of it. We know that they consumed it, even if they only used it line by line and insist they didn't really consume it all as a novel, they used the whole thing. And the other one is the effect of the use on the value of the copyrighted work. Is there less demand for, say, screenplays by John Waters if OpenAI can suck up all of John Waters' screenplays and then produce screenplays in his style. As Jonathan Handel points out, that's already possible. If you want to write like Hemingway or write a song like Bob Dylan, you can. And people will say, oh, that's Dylan-esque. You know, you can't copyright a style necessarily. The other two elements in fair use are more in support of the language learning models, like the purpose and character of the use. Yes, they consumed Sarah Silverman's humor novel, humor memoir, but they weren't using it to write a humor memoir. They were using it to do all sorts of different things. And what is the nature of the copyrighted work? Um, in that case, they say, um, no one will use ChatGPT and say, well, I don't have to buy Sarah Silverman's book, The Bedwetter. Well, they wouldn't, one does not supplant the other, even if they produce another comic work in the style of Sarah Silverman. To say that we don't want to get into a whole discussion of fair use is an understatement because it is. Why? That's fascinating. It, it, it is a rab, it's a rabbit hole that, I mean, well, okay, but that's, it's a rabbit hole. I have hole to say, it's very annoying. Down. Every time I publish an article 
It is immediately copied and pirated and used on a thousand other websites. A thousand is an exaggeration, but it's all over the internet on these crappy little websites yeah, hoping to a- generate hits about reviews of, say, Paul Simon's Graceland. When the when the album comes out, you're looking, hey, I want a review. You look in Paul Simon's Graceland. They copy my review and post it all over to hopefully get a click so they can that's sell right. an ad and make money. And that happens with every single thing I publish and you can't get it taken down because they're automated pirated websites in other countries. It's so infuriating and it's really bad but it's not the death of the writer yet and happily obviously important and 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 valuable people in the community died this week but there were none that we could bring any insight to but we should mention someone who got sick and that's Sufjan Stevens one of my favorite musicians and artists um he announced that he has a uh, Guillain-Barré syndrome uh which isn't is fun that? you don't want a syndrome that has a name uh, it's very debilitating, but it is, you can be cured from it. You, I mean, you can recover from it is the wording I should use. And he has begun the long road to key, to recovery. Um, um, Guillain-Barre is an autoimmune disease that affects the peripheral nervous system. You get a lot of muscle weakness. Suddenly you can't move. You're, you're in pain. You can't move. It spreads to the whole upper, you know, the arms and the upper body. It can take days or weeks or months to develop. It can be life-threatening. It's, you know, it's a nightmare, obviously. Uh, But in cases, people can, you know, build back up and recover from it. Uh, The cause is still unknown. Um, But it's, it's, it's a nightmare, obviously. And he's an artist who I love and obviously is not uh, a wealthy artist. He's not, you know, Tom Cruise, where he can afford the best healthcare in the world. So, you know, they've been raising money and uh, keeping track of his progress. We just found out about it. I was surprised, frankly, how widely it was covered, but I forgot he was nominated for an Oscar for the song he wrote for Call Me By Your Name, and he performed on the Oscar. So I think that gave him a visibility I hadn't really appreciated. But as with anyone who's sick, you know, we're rooting for you, and hopefully he'll get fully recovered and be able to keep producing great music. I know he has an album coming out out in a week or two, and he finally talked about Guillaume Barre because he said, this is explaining why I'm not out there promoting the new album. <laughs> I, I can't. Yeah, it would make it very hard, actually, now that I'm reading some of the uh, symptoms and some of, the, yeah, it's, it's a serious, rare, oh, yeah, but very, very serious condition. Yeah. But uh, we're not rare. That's we're here every week. Not only is it bad if it's serious, it's, it's really bad if it's serious, and it's really bad if it's rare. <laughs> you want yeah. serious and common so that people are spending money to fix it. When it's rare, you're really screwed. Good point. But you're not screwed if you want to hear about entertainment news next week, because we'll be here, actually, with uh, our next episode. And uh, you know what? You don't want to miss it. So subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Please subscribe to us and rate and review the show wherever you can. It does help us out when you do that. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as Jonathan Handel's work. I'd like to thank him for being here, taking time out of what is a very busy day for him, given that it's been, what, 146 days in the making, uh, at least for the writers. Um, so uh, we'll place links to mm-hmm. all of his work and his, his uh, website in our show notes on showbizsandbox.com. You can email us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Although I guess I should call it X now. Uh, Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be 
found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's music.sufian.com. That's music.sufjan.com. His new album is Javelin, and it comes out October 6th. He's one of my favorites, so check out his music. Well, yeah, and afterwards, check out some of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry over on michaelgiltz.com. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.